HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So today we're talking about home cooking, and it's something that we've talked about a lot on the show with all the cookbook authors and you know food writers and uh, policy folks that have come, in, come through this show and through this station. Um, but today we're taking a slightly different tack, because we're talking with the authors of a study that took five years to complete, and they are completed a book about it, and it's called Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It. First, we have Sarah Bowen, who is joining us on the line. She is the Associate Professor of Sociology at North Carolina State University. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Kathy. Thanks hey. for having us. Thank you so much for joining. And we also have Jocelyn Brenton. She's the Assistant Professor of Sociology at Ithaca College. Hey, Jocelyn. Hi, Kathy. Hey. All right. And then we have Sinica Elliott. She's the Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of British Columbia. Sinica, how are you? I'm well. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for getting together to discuss your book, um, I have to say, if anyone recalls uh, an article that came out in the New York Times in 2014, you might know a little bit about their research. Um, it was called The Joy of Cooking, with a question mark. And um, 
the authors really touched on the topic of how home cooking has been seen as this like magic solve for many problems. <laughs> it'll help us be how be half. I'm sorry. It'll. The idea was that so many food gurus of our day um, have you know have sung the virtues of home cooking as this magic you know cure all for many different reasons. It'll make us hap- happier, healthier, more fulfilled, um, and so forth. But you guys have questioned that idea, and in your research, you found that it's not it's not all roses and it's not very accessible to many people today. So what started you on this path of research? I'm curious. Yeah, so when we started this research, we were hearing all of these messages about Mm -hmm. the power and the value of home cooking and assembling the family around the dinner table nightly to eat a home-cooked meal, preferably from scratch, uh, using whole ingredients. And we we really just wondered, um, is this what's happening in regular families' lives? How do these messages um, appeal to um, regular families and what are regular families doing um, in feeding each other on day-to-day? So we wanted to talk to real families to see what the family meal actually looked like these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned that a lot of these gurus who are singing this message, Michael Pollan, Joel Salatin, Jamie Oliver, they were, I mean, let's face it, white men. So how is that... Um, um, how did that weigh into sort of your your concern over this topic? Yeah, so, right, so folks like Michael Pollan, you know, they, they have a, a big platform, right? They have, um, they're speaking and a lot of people are hearing their messages. And a lot of these um, folks and who we call sometimes food gurus, they definitely care about the planet and they care about the environment. But ultimately, a lot of their message says to individuals, you need to get back in the kitchen. You need to start caring about food more. And we sort of need to revive the positive relationship that we can all have with food. And this message sounds very alluring. Mm-hmm. And on the face of things, it seems like we should be able to do that. But when we actually followed mothers and talked to them and embedded ourselves in their everyday lives, we found that there were a lot of barriers. Right. Now, you did a, um, an extensive research talking to 150 mothers um, and yeah, as you mentioned, embedding yourself in their lives in North Carolina, Raleigh. Um, this is the area that you chose to focus on um, to interview. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you went about the research and like why you chose this area, how you chose your your interviewees and so forth. So we um, it was based in North Carolina in part because we were all at North Carolina State University when we did the study. And then we chose to focus on Raleigh and two rural counties near Raleigh because we thought that it was important to look at both urban and rural places because Mm -hmm. there are some differences, especially in terms of access to food. And um, the majority of the families, 138 of them, were funded under this study that was was looking at poor and working class families and how they ate and fed their their children. So, So that was one of the groups. And then Jocelyn and Sinek and I... Uh, directed that project, and then Jocelyn, for her dissertation, interviewed another um, 30 middle-class and upper-middle-class mothers. And so we tried to um, choose the families to be racially and ethnically diverse, and then they also represented a range of incomes Mm -hmm. and kind of different situations. All of them were 
most of them were mothers, and then we had a few grandmothers that had primary custody of a child, and all of the children were between two and eight. Each family had at least one child between two and eight when we started. So these were really families like in the mm-hmm. throes of parenting with little kids when, when the project right. started. And backing up, you found that, you know, despite all the messages we hear about how cooking or, you know, everyone should be cooking and so forth, a lot of the responsibility of feeding a family children seems to fall on women and the mothers specifically still. Is that right? Yeah. And this is what, this is, this is what research also shows that women are disproportionately um, reporting that they are the person in the household who's primarily responsible for this work. Men have started cooking more uh, mm-hmm. than they were doing, for example, in the 1960s, 70s, um, but they have not replaced uh, women in terms of being the person who's primarily responsible for the the food work. Women still report about 75% say that they're the person in the household who bears responsibility for doing the cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was really lovely that you started out the intro, uh, the introduction for a pressure cooker talking about um, a woman you met ne- named Leanne Ant Armstrong. And um, in the first few paragraphs, she's really gushing about how great of a cook she is and how much she loves to cook. Um, she, she loves to make, you know, her father's recipes. She likes to make her, you know, s- beloved Southern comfort foods. But she doesn't always get to do it because she can't afford to, to purchase the ingredients. Right. Right. And and Leanne's story, this is the story that we heard from so many of the mothers that we talked with and who we got to know. And cooking was great in theory. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted to prioritize food. Everybody wanted to gather around the table and sort of create this, you know, nice family meal. But what we saw and what they were telling us is that when they actually tried to put this into practice in their, in their everyday lives, it was incredibly difficult for a lot of mothers, especially poor and working class mothers. But surprisingly, um, it was also very difficult for middle class mothers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and there was a disconnect between what mothers said they wanted to do and then what they were actually able to do right. on a daily basis. And it sounds like there might be a disconnect, too, in the messaging that we're hearing that, like, you know, if you're not cooking, it's because you're, you know, you're not excited about food or or you're too lazy to or something like that, that that we're hearing. Definitely. I mean, we heard again and again how from these mothers how important food was uh, to them, how much they cared. They were trying really hard to cook. They were investing a lot of time and energy in in cooking, but also thinking about food and planning the meals and shopping and all of these things. But we saw that um, that there were so many things that made it difficult, and this was constraints in terms of money, constraints in terms of time, mm-hmm. and um, this was true for for a lot of the families in different ways. In some cases, for the poor and working class and the more middle class families, but we saw this across the the sample that 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 things were really getting in in these families' ways, even though they were trying really hard and were very committed to cooking. And what are some of the other obstacles? Um, Let's say somebody who is much more comfortable, um, has a little bit more free time, um, comfortable financially, that is. Um, What are some of the other obstacles that you've discovered were coming up? Sure. So, yeah, thinking about middle-class families, you would think, okay, they're they're middle-class, they have stable incomes, they have more predictable work schedules, they should be able to 
put these mm-hmm. kinds of nice meals on the table, meals that are cooked from scratch and maybe even have some organic ingredients. And a lot of the middle-class mothers were trying to do this. But nonetheless, most of the middle-class mothers, um, the both um, adults in the home were working outside of the home, so they were employed full-time. Mm-hmm. And also we see that parents are now expected to invest a lot of time and energy in cultivating their children's talents and skills and abilities So you have these middle-class families who have resources, and so they're uh, shuttling the kids off to karate practice, right, Mm -hmm. or different kinds of uh, enrichment activities. And so their days are incredibly hectic. Mm -hmm. Uh, As one mother that we talk about in the book put it, you know, I'm sort of go-going from the minute I get up till the minute I get back into bed in the evening. So these families are actually pretty strapped for time, and they also said they would like more money to do grocery shopping. They wanted to buy more organic foods. They wanted to buy uh, from the local farmer, farmer's market, but this is a very expensive way to shop. And even they didn't have enough money to eat uh, the way they wanted and create mm-hmm. these ideal meals. And it sounds like being... I, oh, go ahead. Just, Please. Yeah. Uh, just to jump in about the poor and working class families, um, that it wasn't just because of money. I mean, money was a big issue. And a lot of mothers said, like, we would eat differently. We would eat more fresh fruit, for example, because our kids love it if we had more money. But it was also the way that money and time intersected. Mm -hmm. And we saw this in in a few ways. One was that, um, that to save money on food, it costs a lot of time. So, you know, shopping the sales and going to multiple stores and trying to figure out what are the best things to buy, those were things that, um, that the poor moms sometimes did to, to save money, but they cost time. And then also um, we saw with a lot of the poor and working class families in our study that it wasn't just the amount of time they had, but also their control over time. They were more likely to work in, a lot of them worked in um, sort of low-wage service jobs like McDonald's or Wendy's or fast food. So, so somewhat ironically, they were helping feed other people, but those jobs had very unpredictable schedules. So they, so they uh, wouldn't find out their schedules sometimes till the night before, and then they'd scramble to figure out, like, child care. They often were relying on unreliable child care and help with transportation. And um, so that was those kind of unpredictable schedules that made it really hard to plan meals or even to know who was going to be in the house, uh, who was going to be home for dinner mm-hmm. on a particular night. So um, while you're embedded with these communities, with these, with these women, um, what are some surprises? Because, you know, you, you set out to find out, you know, more about their stories, more about the, the realities about cooking. And um, you mentioned that, you know, you yourselves are academics and, and you're more middle class, you're women who, um, you know, you can relate in a lot of ways, but still you wanted to kind of like reach the people that you that were not in your exact demographics, right? So um, what were some some things that you really learned and what are some major takeaways, I guess? Uh, so one of the things that we uh, weren't necessarily surprised about, but we mm. think it's an important thing to point out, is that the uh, poor and working class um, people in the U.S. are sometimes stereotyped as um, not knowing about nutrition, um, not understanding what good food is or... Um, eating fast food, and we we found that these families knew a lot about nutrition. They they had the information about um, what foods to eat, mm-hmm. whole grains, fruits and vegetables, 
uh, fresh foods, avoid processed foods. So they, they weren't lacking the, the uh, knowledge um, about foods. And we also found that they were cooking at home a lot. And this mm. is what national surveys also show, that poor and working-class families tend to be cooking um, the majority of the nights and are actually less likely to eat um, fast food than our middle-class um, Americans. And so there's a lot of cooking going on, and there's a lot of knowledge. Um, and then, I guess not surprisingly as well, we just found that it was often hard for them to put into practice the information right. that they, they had mm-hmm. about um, nutrition because these foods are um, more expensive. Um, uh, studies have shown to eat um, the USDA uh, food guidelines is more expensive um, than, than not. And so they weren't able to actually implement the, the great nutrition knowledge that mm. they already had. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think, as Jocelyn already mentioned, we were surprised that when we found that everyone across the board didn't feel like they could eat the way they would ideally prefer to eat. Um, and so even the families with a lot of resources uh, felt like they were coming up short. And part of this was also because they would encounter picky eaters or mm-hmm. families who pushed back against their efforts to incorporate um, more foods that are thought of as healthy, like brown rice instead of uh, white rice uh, into their diets. And so it's another thing that we really want to make a point in the book is that when you're cooking um, and feeding others, then you also are having to balance these competing um, palates and competing interests around food and what family members will actually um, be receptive towards and uh, what they will uh, reject uh, and kinds of trade-offs that you're making over whether you waste food or you make something you know everybody's going to eat. So maybe the dinner time isn't as sort of idyllic <laughs> as 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 many would uh, paint the picture of it to be um, when you're dealing with families with all sorts of tastes and preferences at the table. Um, yeah, we watched a lot of families eat dinner, and uh, we didn't watch um, very few of those meals. It just involved everybody happily eating the food that they were served. Almost always there was at least one person and sometimes more who would say, ooh, what is this? I don't want to eat this. Can I take this off my plate? Or whatever it might be. And so, yes, it's even yeah. when you do take the time to prepare the food, it's, you're not guaranteed that you're going to have a receptive audience. There are a lot of um, competing demands um, on our taste these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I thought your case studies here were fascinating, but um, I want to talk a lot more about um, some of the solutions that you provide as well um, to the dilemmas that you discovered. Um, right after a quick little commercial break, and we'll be right back chatting more. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. 
Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot-rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, and we're back speaking today with Sarah Bowen, Jocelyn Brenton, Seneca Elliott, and Seneca Elliott, who are the authors of Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It. So thank you both. Um, thank you both. Thank you all three <laughs> so much again for looking into these topics and, and really discovering the research that will hopefully help drive policies in a smarter and more uh, accurate way. Um, but to, to, I guess, move on, unless you had any more sort of like sort of main takeaways or surprises, perhaps, that you learned from research um, um, before we get down to some of the solutions that you propose. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Just one thing mm-hmm. um, to add that I found surprising was, I think, just how out of touch some some of the foodie recommendations seemed with the lives of some of the families in our study. Oh, really? Um, and so, and, and really what I'm thinking is when we hear this kind of advice of, like, it's really not that hard to roast a lot of vegetables on the weekend, or it's really not that hard, and it's pretty cheap if you roast a whole cu- uh, a whole chicken and then you can use it to make multiple meals. We We hear that from foodies kind of in the news and the media, but we also heard it like sometimes people would call in uh, to talk about our our research. And not for all, but for, for quite a lot of the families in our study, they didn't have sharp knives. They didn't have cutting boards. They might not have like a big pot to um, cook things. They didn't necessarily have a, a – the stove might be broken for like a month or more because they couldn't afford to have it fixed. So um, – I think sometimes those those recommendations they make a lot of assumptions that didn't mesh up well with with a lot of the families in our study. Right, and certainly you could be dealing with folks who are um, not only food insecure but housing insecure, uh, or living in a motel, that kind of thing, without really much access to a kitchen. Um, how do you think the um, the subjects overall took these messages? Did they did they find it? Did they? Did you encounter um, like pushback? Did you did you find that they were frustrated by hearing these? Um, I don't know some some of these like popular cooking mantras of today. Sure. So the the middle class mothers we talked with, especially, were were getting these messages. They are the ones that are most likely to be trying to create these Pinterest worthy meals. They were uh-huh. sharing recipes with each other. Um, the middle class mothers especially tended to have very high levels of education, so they were looking into the research mm. and they were trying to figure out, should I eat organic strawberries or, or not, and, and how much of this really matters. And so all of the mothers we talked with really had this sense that it matters a lot, and what I'm mm. feeding my children today is going to affect the kind of eater they become 10, 15 years down the road. And so they had this sense that mm. there was... Um, and that they really needed to be paying attention to what's happening in the here and now. And every once in a while, moms would talk about when they'd sort of, um, you know, found a hack that worked. Some mothers oh. were chopping vegetables on the weekend. But even the mothers who talked about trying to cook in batches on the weekends and do these things, they then would ultimately describe how at some point it all fell apart, <laughs> that only one event during the day, somebody coming um, staying late at work, Right or something right. like a family member visiting from out of town could sort of make the whole house of cards fall down. So these mm-hmm. these individualized solutions 
can sometimes feel empowering in the moment, and maybe they work for a week, and maybe they work for a month. But what we were hearing from others is that ultimately, in the long run, trying to find these uh, individual solutions to these broader problems of feeding your children mm-hmm. healthy foods, mm-hmm. uh, that they weren't able to just take it all on and have it work out beautifully. It just wasn't, that just wasn't happening. Yeah. So I guess um, to, to, to sort of get your take on this, uh, if you had some advice to give to some of these food writers <laughs> when they're making suggestions on uh, cooking, parenting, lifestyle, making it all work, uh, what do you think that they should keep in mind? Or how could they improve their their messaging to be more um, yeah, I just thoughtful? Think that, I think we need to stop asking families to do it on their own and really think about the ways communities and policymakers can feel equally invested in feeding families. And there are a lot of different ways that we could do this. And uh, so one of the w- ways is just by creating more family-friendly policy. And that can include a whole range of things like just uh, paid um, sick days, um, subsidized preschool and uh, daycare, um, universal health care. So health is a big issue. And some of the working class and poor families that uh, were in our study um, had sort of accumulated health issues over time, whether through Mm. working in dirty and dangerous jobs um, or through um, just having a a lack of access to right. health, regular health care, and uh, this has long-term consequences for people's health. So just thinking about families and how you can support families uh, in policy uh, makes a difference in uh, people's lives, both in terms of their health but also in terms of their well-being. Studies that look at uh, families across uh, different nations um, find that in countries that have family-friendly policies, parents in those countries are much happier than parents in the U.S., where we don't have very many supports for families. Um, so this tells us that these policies work. Uh, right. So do you think that the food content creators should keep bear in mind more about the social um, policies that are that they're talking about that they're that we're dealing with that are maybe um, on the rise today? Or, or is that something like they should look into on their spare time? What do you think? Could you repeat the question? So do you think that food content creators need to bear in mind um, ideas about social policy um, when they're creating a food you know, content of some sort? Do you mean the food, the people that are making the food, the, com- the food companies? No, sorry, the, content the creators. Authors, sorry, that, kind of. I mean authors, yeah, basically cookbook authors, that kind of thing. When they... I, I think one of the things that we see and we sort of take on in the book is sort of this temptation to um, sort of look at the past through rose-colored glasses, right? That you'll hear this sort of advice that we should really, um, again, we should reestablish our love for food and our value of food, and it should be the priority mm-hmm. and the centerpiece of family life, and that we should get back to cooking the way grandma did, right? Don't eat anything with ingredients that grandma wouldn't recognize. And really, we're really challenging sort of that notion. Um, and we ask, well, whose who's grandmother are we talking about here? Because actually, it was only a small percentage of the population, right? Typically white, middle-class women who had the luxury of cooking in the way that, you know, some of the 
you know, food pundits and food celebrities are talking about. A lot of women were, especially women of color and poor women, were working in other women's homes to feed their families as domestic servants. And we still see these trends today um, with the kind of, with women who work in fast food, like Sarah was saying, to feed other families. So that's a romantic notion. Mm-hmm. But it's not exactly accurate, and it's not going to get us out of the bind that we're in right. when it okay. comes to food and some of our most pressing food problems. Right. So maybe being cognizant about just just not making it seem like this is this is for everyone, and this will you know solve everything. I guess as your title I, hints at. Oh, go I ahead. think also recognizing the labor in food. Like mm-hmm. I hear from the from some of the foodie messages, like that we need to rediscover rediscover the joy in cooking and the pleasure of cooking. And I think, you know, being cognizant of the labor that's involved in food and the way that families are trying to do this in the context of all these other demands on their time. And so, um, you know, as to the question of like, should, should we expect foodies to push for social policy? Maybe a little, because I think that's what families need. Mm-hmm. But um, I get that their messages are specifically around food and that maybe they don't feel like that's their purview. But I do think, like, we need to recognize the labor and inequality that shapes how we eat in the United States. I don't see that in a lot of these messages, and I think that isn't so important. And when we just tell people, like, rediscover the joy of cooking, everyone has time to do it, if they would just prioritize it, I think we're missing that part of it. And we really can't address how people eat if we don't address those inequalities. Mm Mm-hmm. So how should we um, address these inequalities, um, as you suggest in your book? Like, what are some of the some of the solutions out there that you found? Uh, so we have we have um, some solutions around food. That we have a national school lunch program in the U.S., but there are problems with it. The food isn't often considered nutritious right. or tasty, and there's some stigma around eating school lunch or receiving free and subsidized meals. So why don't we make school lunches available free to all students and let's make them with healthy ingredients and incorporating diverse recipes so that kids are getting a a healthy meal um, that's nourishing in the middle of the day. And this would actually support families a lot um, in the work of feeding uh, children. And we could also be thinking about creative ways to use existing commercial kitchens and like daycares or churches or community centers. These places uh, have existing commercial kitchens that could wow. be used to make healthy, ready-made dinners for families. Who, and ideally, they could buy it on a sliding scale mm-hmm. um, so that families with more means can pay a little bit more and families with fewer means can um, get these meals at a reduced price. And so, again, this is just breaking down the barriers for mm-hmm. um, having a meal at the end of the day and having a meal that's that's um, nourishing. I'll let one of my co-authors talk a little bit more. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great idea. Yeah, and so in in the book we say, you know, we can work at this national level, we can Mm -hmm. work at this community level, and we can also work at the individual level. And we certainly appreciate individual mothers and parents and caregivers who say, okay, yes, we may need to change policy, and we could recognize that. 
but what can I do in my own home, in my everyday life? And we appreciate that people want to hear these things, and we all want to feel individually empowered. And one of the things that we say at the individual level is that we should really uncouple this package deal that equates good mothering with feeding this ideal um, magazine-like meal on your table every night. It's not realistic for families, and it's not necessarily what we need to Mm -hmm. uh, create happy and healthy homes. In fact, some research shows that it's just spending time with your children and carving out some time in the day that can be really positive for their well-being. And mothers are feeling the pressure, and this is not good for their well-being. And so we say, hey, you know, maybe we don't have to... um, Uh, have our whole identities as women and mothers revolving around the food we put on the table. It's important, but it's not Uh all of who we are. And so if you need to, you know, pop a frozen pizza in the (laughs) oven one night a week, it's fine. And probably the kids are going to be okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I know that you had some also some some really cool ideas about like creatively communally cooking. Um, I don't know how to describe that. Yeah. Uh, go on. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Uh, so Seneca mentioned some of it of just mm-hmm. the idea that using if, a space. If it's important that families have meals together, these nourishing meals together. Like, mm-hmm. can we move away from the expectation that all of the work for that meal has to occur inside the home? Right. So, um, and, you know, for people that have a lot of money, there are already lots of supports in place, things like um, meal kits that take all the work out of meal planning, or you can have your groceries delivered to your door. But for the vast majority of families in our study, those things were totally inaccessible. So the to-go meal idea is is one of those ideas, but also um, a, a lot of communities and churches and other groups are already doing community meals, and a lot of the families in our study went to that, where it would be, you know, people getting together on, often on a weeknight, and it was, um, for for a lot of the moms, honestly, it was one of the reasons was just like, here's an excuse not to have to cook, which I think is actually um, a great (laughs) reason, but but there were other benefits, too, because it was a a way to interact with people, you know, to interact with different people, Mm -hmm. to have other people interact with your children, to kind of share some of the work and care around the table as well. Yeah, I really love this um, this notion that you bring up, and it sounds like something that can be leveraged in many different ways, large, small, um, you know, small community church get-together and so forth. Um, so it's something that anyone can, like, try and make an effort to to foster in their community. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think a great ex- I think a great example of this is that when I was in graduate school, I had young children and it was working all day and my husband was also working outside of the home. And so our daycare was uh, locally owned by this family. It was a wonderful mm-hmm. place for our kids. And they had this industrial kitchen and mm-hmm. they saw that families were picking their children up at 530 in uh, the evening and they were harried and they were trying to rush <laughs> their kids out of there to get home because they had to cook dinner. So they said, OK, we're going to two nights a week. We are going to make meals to go for families. They charge $12 for those meals. Uh-huh. And they were great. They were pretty nutritious meals. They were pretty affordable. And I just remember that being such a luxury and, and feeling like it really sort of opened up the space so that we could bring that meal home, eat it. And then we had a little bit more time together um, at the at the end of the day and things weren't so rushed. And that was such that was such a great example. Uh, that sounds solution. wonderful. All right. I have to ask the hard question, though. Is this socialism? <laughs> just kidding. Is this leaning no, towards that? No, sociologists. <laughs> sociologists are not... <laughs> We're not socialists. 
But I think so. But I think we have this fear, like in the United mm-hmm. States, whenever we start talking about collective supports, we start talking about socialism as if yeah. it's like as if it's a like a black line that we could cross. And if you look at um, you know Sweden, which is a democratic socialist country, like it's also very capitalist. Like the market is alive and well, and it looks a lot and feels a lot like the United States. And the main difference is that they have. These supports, and many of them are universal supports, so like all families, regardless of their income, get that in terms of um, subsidized daycare and um, paid vacation and paid sick leave and support for, for raising children. Like they, they get a child payment, which lots of, lots of countries um, have, and I think there are some proposals for that in the United States. And, you know, they don't feel that different. I think the main difference is just that the that the work of caring for children and supporting families is not just left to families to do totally on their own, but they recognize that like caring for children is an important public good. Like we need children, so mm-hmm. we should support families in that effort. Absolutely. Yeah, and research shows that when we encourage individual solutions for these broad social problems, people tend to think that individuals are responsible for their own problems and can solve them themselves. And this means that uh, the families that we studied often just felt like if things didn't work out, if they were running out of food or if they didn't get um, that Instagram-worthy meal on the table, that they were failing and they blamed themselves. Um, And so this is also not healthy um, for us. So if we can think about how these are problems that are shared, um, we saw so many commonalities across the um, families in our study in terms of the things that they were struggling with around food and family. These are not individual problems. They're shared collective problems. So why don't we think about some collective ways that we can tackle them? Absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, we celebrate food. We love food. The three of us love food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we like to come together around food and we value families. And so we have to put our policies behind that then. You actually uh, have to support families and set them up for success to create and enable them to sort of enact these values uh, we say we all believe in. Awesome. So this is like, actually, you know, this book um, is very uplifting in that sense. And thank you so much, you know, for sharing your take on that. Um, it looks like that's about all the time we have for today, but I really hope that um, everyone gets their hands on on pressure cooker, reads about it. There's been a few recent articles about it too, but um, taking the deep dive and reading um, about the work that you have shared, uh, these profiles, um, the voices that you've um, shared with everyone in this book, is it's a really important work that you guys have done. So thank you so much for this book. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And I was saying uh, a little bit earlier that, you know, I felt a certain amount of like guilty as chargedness (laughs) with regards to creating, um, you know, this message about cooking as a as a really positive, you know, thing that we all should do more of and all yada, yada, yada. So I I really am grateful for um, the research that shows the whole scope of problems that people encounter when they try to cook. So, um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll I be think more. we'd love to see our society enable everybody to find a little bit of joy in cooking, and mm-hmm. we're pointing to the uh, the supports people need. So, hope yeah. we can hope we can do both, right? You can achieve your goal, and we can achieve ours at the same time. I think they're complementary goals. That sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, 
Sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Sarah, Jocelyn, Seneca. Thanks so much for your research. And I really appreciate you guys coming together to talk about it today on Heritage Radio Network. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.